Three weeks ago, when we began studying Matthew 6, I told you that Jesus used the word reward seven times. Reward, of course, is a positive word, and seven in the Bible is the perfect number, so Jesus was using this positive word seven times. I find it interesting that in the final section of Matthew 6, which is our passage for today, Jesus uses the word anxious six times. And so that's a negative word being used an imperfect number of times. And just a little... Just a little thing, right? Rewards good, anxiety bad. You know, what's Jesus saying? He's saying focus your attention on God and the blessings of God's kingdom. But this is just another example of why I love the Bible. Um, It is so thoughtful. It is so beautiful. Down to even the smallest details. There's no way you could convince me that Jesus just did that unintentionally. Um, so that's, uh, that's how we're going to begin. We're going to begin reading today in verse 25. Verse 25, just four words to start. Therefore, I tell you, okay? Therefore is always an important word in the Bible. It's a conclusion word. So Jesus has made an argument and now he is drawing a conclusion based on what he just said in the previous verses about serving God instead of money. So if you were here last week, that's, you know, Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. And so his argument then is this, because your heart is devoted to God and his kingdom, because you're my disciples and that's what you're focused on instead of the world, he then says this, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And this is the first command of our text this morning. Do not be anxious about your life. Specifically, he refers to what we consume and what we wear. But what does it mean to be anxious about those things? Some of this will clear up as we keep reading. But for now, there's a a broad way to think about this that may be helpful. Most people live their lives with this unspoken philosophy. And it's that we're trying to get as much as we can out of life. We're trying to have the best life that we can have. And we measure it usually in experiences and in stuff. Solomon described it like this. Eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And that's the philosophy that most people in the world have, is I don't know how long I have on this earth. Hopefully, 
you know, X amount of years, but I don't know that, right? And so I might as well squeeze as much out of life as I can today because who knows what tomorrow will bring. And the funny thing is, I actually think Jesus is challenging that philosophy. He's telling his disciples that they don't need to worry about trying to get their best life. Instead, Jesus wants to convince his disciples to trust God and to be content. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so Jesus pleads with us. Don't you know that there are more important things in life than the stuff that you're getting anxious about? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus says, don't you know that my Father loves you? Don't you know that He cares for you? Don't you know that your needs will be met? By your Father. Verse 27. He says, And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Which is interesting because medically speaking, anxiety is probably subtracting hours from our lives, right? Nothing is gained by worry. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, compared to us, birds have short lives. Grass and flowers have even shorter lives. But for the time they're meant to live, God provides everything that they needed. And here Jesus chooses to introduce, for the first time in the book of Matthew, the word faith. Jesus is going to use the word faith 19 times in the book of Matthew, but this is the first time he uses it. And the way that Jesus uses the word faith here, what he's saying is that our anxiety expresses 
a lack of faith. Now, most people think that the opposite of faith is doubt, right? If somebody were to ask you, what's the opposite of faith? Probably the first word that would come to our mind is, is doubt. But it's probably more accurate when thinking of the Bible to say that the opposite of faith is self-sufficiency. You see, rather than trusting and depending upon God, which is Jesus' point, we tend to believe that it is our job to get what we need. And so, we're running out of time. We're running out of resources. We're running out of energy. And that's why we worry. Because we believe... That it's our job to get what we need. Not God's job to provide it. But if we trust what Jesus is telling us, if it's God's responsibility to care for His children, then that changes everything. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus says. Verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, right, the pagans, the the non-believers, they seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then Jesus ends the chapter with my favorite verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, here it is. My favorite verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, the reason I love that verse is because I imagine Jesus says that with a bit of a grin. Because it's kind of a joke. (laughs) Right? And I use this all the time in conversation, you know. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. But the message is clear. What is Jesus saying to His disciples, His followers? He's commanding them, do not be anxious, right? It's a a waste of our time to be anxious, and it's a demonstration of a lack of faith in God to be anxious. That's... A clear message. The problem is, how are we supposed to apply this to our lives? Because it's kind of a big, broad, blanket statement, right? Do not be anxious. And there are several difficulties when it comes to applying this command. We need to think carefully about it because it's been misused many times by many Christians, many churches. And one of the challenges here is that in a room of, you know, however many people this is, there are probably 20 different responses to the words of Jesus, right? So if I say, do not be anxious, that probably means 20 different things to the people sitting in this room, listening online. People have different pastoral needs, You're in different places. You're in different places with your walk with Jesus. Different 
contexts of doubt, how you even think about the Bible, different personalities even. Anxiety is kind of a a complex thing, right? And Jesus often teaches in ways in the Gospels. He says things that can be applied many different ways. And so the statement, do not be anxious, is not so simple to apply, especially in a world that is, in, in my view, riddled with anxiety and very confused spiritually. So how do we apply this for us? I really appreciate the way um, D.A. Carson illustrates this. He's got a, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think he illustrates this very well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase what he says because it, it's too long to read. But he says, imagine three men. The first man is cheerful and carefree. He rarely gets anything done, never gets anything done on time. He doesn't worry about the next five minutes, let alone tomorrow. It's very difficult to get him to work at any task. Everyone knows him as the nice guy. But he's irresponsible and he's insensitive to the needs of others. So that's the first man. The second man is almost hyper-responsible. He takes every grief and every burden very seriously. The state of the economy is a constant weight on his mind. Every bit of bad news prompts a new outbreak of anxiety and his constant worry is causing ulcers. That's the second man. The third man is balanced and dependable. He's married with two children. He works faithfully to support his family. One night he wakes up to discover that his wife cannot speak and she cannot move the right side of her body. They discover that she has a brain tumor. She has surgery. But the surgery is a failure. And his wife has been given less than three years to live. Now, Carson says, I want you to imagine that all three of these men are listening to a sermon on Matthew 6. And the preacher concludes the sermon by telling the church that worry is shameful and wicked. But gives no further application. And he asks, how do you think each man will react? Probably the first man will leave the church quite happy, right? Don't be anxious. I got that one, right? I've been saying for years, you people are all too stuck up and too worried and uptight all the time, right? And so he leaves feeling very good about himself. The second man may feel quite rebuked by the sermon. He knows the preacher's probably thinking about him. And so he leaves worrying that he's been denying the Lord and he feels despair and doubt. And 
He's stricken with this sense of guilt. And without any sense of irony, he begins to worry about worry. (laughs) The third man, though, he listens to the sermon and Carson says, unless he is remarkably mature and full of grace, he will bitterly sneer under his breath that the preacher should watch his own wife die before speaking on so difficult a topic. You see, that's why application is so important but so difficult. And I'll confess, I don't always do a great job of this. Not even sure I will this morning. And so I pray that the Spirit will fill in the gaps where I miss the message. The first man probably needed to hear that what Jesus is saying when He says, do not be anxious, doesn't eliminate the need for discipline and self-sacrifice and hard work. It's not His intent. The second man should hear something also about God's providence of the means and results of prayer. Why we talk to God and what we can expect in return and of the selfishness at the heart of our worry. Where does it come from? What causes it? The third man really needs a a brother in Christ to weep with him, to pledge his support, and perhaps to remind him of the proof of God's love in Christ, the cross of Jesus. So my question for you is this, what do you hear when Jesus says to you, do not be anxious? And what I want to do is I want to put up some biblical guardrails in how we apply this to our lives. So I'm going to give you a bunch of things that Jesus is not saying, and then I'm going to tell you what I think He's saying. Okay. First, I think it is accurate to say that there is a type of worry that is evil, and there is a type of worry that is good and responsible. Seeking the kingdom involves a measure of healthy worry. And I'm going to defend this by saying that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He prayed to the Father and He sweat drops of blood before He went to the cross. And what was He so concerned about? Doing the will of the Father. And I think that proves that God created us as humans, even in a perfect state, we have the capacity to experience anxiety of some kind and that it's not all bad. The question is, what are we anxious about? What does it tell us about our heart? Second, Jesus is not giving us a license to trash our bodies. Right? When he says, do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear, he's not saying, you know, 
<laughs> Katie, bar the doors, do whatever you want, right? He's, he, we should care for our bodies. I think scripture encourages us. We should think about what we put in our bodies, what we keep out, right? But there's a difference between caring for the body that God gave us and being obsessed with it. It is possible to live a healthy life without being obsessed over fitness and dieting and things like that. And remember, we're not promised tomorrow. In Christ, we're promised eternity. But this body is still going to die. So there's a, there's a measure there. Third, I don't think Jesus is giving us a license to be lazy. When he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. In fact, scripture is very clear that able-bodied Christians are expected to work for a living. Right? Just look at the illustration of the birds. Birds aren't fed by some miracle while sitting lazily in a tree. Right? I mean, if you just imagine a bird sitting in a hammock with a cocktail, right? And God just kind of drops food in his mouth. That's not how it works, right? Birds work extremely hard to find the food that they need to get the energy that they require. And so Paul actually commands the church in Thessalonica. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, this is again, if you're able to work. Number four. Jesus is not prohibiting us from planning ahead. And sometimes this passage has been used as a justification to say, see, you shouldn't save, you shouldn't plan, you should just go with the flow, right? But I would ask again, how do birds eat in the winter? Most of them migrate hundreds or thousands of miles, right? Or have some other creative way of getting food in times when food is scarce. Proverbs 6 encourages us to consider the way of the ant and store up food for ourselves, right? So it's a good idea to save and to plan. I don't think Jesus is saying that. Number five, Jesus is not exempting us as Christians from having times of trouble. He commands us not to worry, but He does not promise us an easy life, right? It is true that God feeds the birds. It is true that He clothes the flowers, but birds sometimes get eaten by other animals or fly into windows and die, right? Grass withers. Flowers fade, right? He provides for them until, in His providence, it's time for them to go. And so Jesus is not, by saying this, saying, your life is going to be easy, it's going to be carefree, you can just trust Him, it's just going to be glorious. There will be suffering. He promises His people that that will happen. And finally, Jesus is not exempting us from taking care of other people. It's interesting in the end, God does promise to provide for His children, but if you consider the entire New Testament, very often the church 
is the means by which God feeds and clothes his people who are unable to do so. God's church has always been known by this. The early church, the early Christians had gained a reputation in the Roman Empire for supporting not only their own poor, but anyone in need. And I think this is an important point. You see, for some, this this is a hard passage because they look at the disparities in the world and even the psalmist talks about this, right? You know, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why is there so much disparity, right? And Jesus could command His disciples not to worry about having their needs met, even widows and orphans, because God would be using the church to meet those needs. Yes, it comes from the Father, but God ordains both the ends and the means, right? And so there are instructions to care for the poor Everywhere in the New Testament, no one says it more clearly than James, the brother of Jesus. He says, uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so those are my guardrails. So whatever do not be anxious means to you, it needs to be somewhere inside those guardrails. And it it does mean something. And so what do I think Jesus is asking us to do as individual believers as the church? Okay, here it is. Jesus is asking us to trust His Father. Father knows what you need and when you need it, including the path of suffering. I believe in the providence of God. I believe that not one hair falls from my head without His knowledge and His foreknowledge, His providence. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without our Father ordaining it. Now that's heavy, and and some of you may struggle with what all that means. And that's okay, because it's a bit of a mystery. And yet I believe that even if God brings suffering into my life as His child, He's doing it for a reason. And there is some good purpose attached to it. And so Jesus is saying, trust my Father. And that's it. And if you struggle with that, I think He might also would say to us, and know that the Son of God walked a difficult path before you. And that even when you struggle to trust God, remember that Jesus trusted Him perfectly in your place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, it would be difficult to receive these words 
from someone who is distant and cold and wealthy and uninterested in our daily lives and unable to relate. But we have a great high priest who has who is able to identify with all of our weakness, with all of our struggle, with all of our suffering. So much so that whatever we have experienced or will experience, we can trust You with it. You are not cold or distant. You are our Emmanuel. You are God with us. And we as Your people have union with You. The most important truth about me is that I'm united to Christ. The most important truth about everyone in this room whose faith is in you is that they are united to you as sons and daughters of the living God. And you are our Father and we can trust you. Help us to trust you more. We believe, help our unbelief. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.